I'm Damien Fowler. Welcome to this edition of The Current Podcast. This week, we're queuing up a great conversation between two advertisers who may not, on first glance, seem to have that much in common. We're joined by Vinnie Rinaldi, the head of media and analytics at the Hershey Company, and Kyle Yaden-Smith, the head of digital for the National Republican Senatorial Committee. That said, we thought it would be fascinating to hear what a big CPG brand like Hershey can learn from a major political advertiser like the NRSC. And since this is an election year, what better time to host this conversation? It's been said that every great political campaign rewrites the rules. At the same time, CPG brands can now supercharge campaigns with retail data. With all that in mind, let's get to it. So both of you, of course, are focused on reaching those respective audiences whether you call them consumers or voters, I'd love to hear from both of you on what you think you may have in common. Kyle, can I start with you? I was going to joke, the uh, the biggest thing is uh, we're both targeting suburban women, I think, is our key marketplace this cycle. <laughs> um, obviously, that's not the only uh, demographic that's going to be key on the political landscape, but uh, we're going to be running ads in October, and so we're going to screw up your Halloween marketing. Thankfully, you guys do not have a uh, Georgia runoff this year, so it should be okay by Christmas. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to be targeting a lot of the same consumers slash uh, voter demographics. So it's kind of, it's, it's interesting how that kind of plays out. And Vinny? Yeah, I would agree. I think there's more correlation. I think, you know, we're looking at the same content areas to show up in as a brand to sell chocolate as you guys are to show up and influence somebody to vote one way or the other. In those big environments, you know, a lot of how we look to show up is how do we drive seasonality in local markets at a certain store? So you're right. In October, believe me, it's probably hot topic number one of like the lead up to our Super Bowl, October 31st. There's a serious presidential election happening a week later. Yeah. So how much will that play a role when we're buying you know, market-based ads? So it is an area, I wouldn't say a concern, but an area that we're certainly focused on of like, how do we make sure we're showing up? in the right markets during our most precious time of year, but being cognizant of some of the headwinds we might face based on what's happening in real time. It's interesting, you know, you're sort of talking in a way about competition between, say, chocolate and political campaigns. But on the other hand, there's a sort I think of- we would lose that one if you had to vote on one or the other. But- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course, there's an alignment too. I mean, maybe you guys can, you know, get together and cross-reference here. I mean, I joke as we look at all of the debates leading up to it, and one of our products is Popcorn. How do we show up and say, get your Popcorn ready for all these new events that are happening? So can you bridge that gap and kind of work together? There's a lot of areas of interest. Politics is pop culture now, right? Like, I'll never forget. One of the funniest ads I saw was, I think it was Advil. They bought the promoted tweet on the first day of the debate in 2016, and it said, do you have a headache from this debate, you know, by Advil? And I thought that was kind of a fun way to play into it. What's interesting to me is, you know, in looking at, say, any given political campaign, how the importance of being reactive in the moment, kind of real time, is so crucial, you know, for getting those swing voters out to either vote or just to nudge the needle a little bit. And I'm wondering, you know, if that idea of the sped up data-driven campaign is obviously influencing the way CPG brands like Hershey think about campaigns. I think we certainly use data-driven tactics in a very similar way. You, know, you think back to the last... I guess it's 16 years since the 2008 election, which is crazy. During that election, when when President Obama won, you know, it goes a little unnoticed of how he won and the tactics he used, which were way ahead of its time. And a lot of this using the data 
focusing on different demographic urban environments, getting those people to the polling centers. Like we're trying to do the same thing during whether it's a big season or to drive everyday occurrences. Like how do you find those pockets of incremental opportunities to grow from the base that's already there is very correlated to from when President Obama did it to President Trump doing it in 2016 and really becoming a more data-driven tactic on how you show up in those moments. I mean, it's kind of funny, both Obama in 2012 and uh, President Trump in uh, 2016 both had a actually almost similar data strategy. They're both very digital heavy from a percentage perspective for their time. And then, of course, nowadays, we actually can't use that data on quite a few platforms. So data is extremely important in the political space, obviously. There's uh, 60% of Americans over the age of 18 are going to vote this cycle. And a lot of those folks are going to vote for the same party they've always voted for. And identifying people that you know swing back and forth is the key to winning, obviously, and that coalition changes every cycle. For us, it's leveraging the data to inform what that audience looks like so that we can make tactical data-driven decisions, even on platforms that don't let us use it directly, of which you know is the bulk of the ecosystem at this point. It's an interesting point. Like We as a big, massive consumer packaged goods brand that sells chocolate has no first party data. We have to talk to everybody. Literally 98% of the um, US population eats candy, mint, or gum. So for us, it's like, how do you balance? You want scalability no matter what, but what are the right insights and data points that you utilize when you go to activation? Because if you're trying to find one-to-one in any second and or third party data partnerships, in some platforms, not all, you're losing the findability due to some of the privacy regulations that are coming up. So if you don't own the data asset itself in a first-party ecosystem, it's a lot harder to deliver that experience. And it's also a lot harder to collect first-party data when you're a brand that everyone else sells your product. You're just driving demand through advertising and awareness and driving people to the store. But from a D2C perspective, where a lot of that collection can happen, it's a little bit more of a challenge on our end to be able to sell chocolate and collect a data point off of those people. What's interesting to me about this is according to a study by the Trade Desk Intelligence with Morning Consult, during the 2022 midterms, 75% of all Americans who say they might vote in the midterms say they know who they're going to vote for. So I don't know from a political standpoint, do you market to those people or is marketing always at the margins, as it were? You know, are you always trying to reach out to that undecided voter? And I wonder if that carries over into CPG thinking as well. I actually think this may be a space where things are more similar than they are different. You know, if you've bought Hershey Kisses every year for Christmas and your family's always done that and you always, you know, put that in the stocking, you're probably going to continue to do it until something shifts or something changes. There's pretty high retention, right, in terms of Republicans from 2016 are very likely to be Republicans again, 2024. But things do change. You know, the people will always tell you they say they know who they're going to vote for today. But then there could be a news story that drops at some point next year that scrambles everything. You know, it changes people's opinions on issues. It changes how people think about things. And we have to react very, very quickly to that and make sure that, you know, if the story is good for us, that everyone knows about it, or if the story is bad for us, that we have our point of view out there to to kind of counter what the information is. It's kind of hard to expect who those people are going to be or what's going to trigger that. So I think that kind of leads to the importance of talking to everyone and making sure that you kind of have a broad message out there. But we also know our folks that are, you know, Republican donors donate or vote in every single election that are probably on our team. So it's kind of just uh, doing a little bit of both. You know, you look at Orisa's peanut butter cups, they have a 64% household penetration. I'm not sure there's any single brand out there that comes as close. So if you think about it, you're almost everywhere. So you're constantly speaking to everybody and hoping, you know, in those moments, you're getting that incremental gain for a new household conversion and or a repeat purchaser. So you do want to talk to both. You're also looking at probably one of the more impulsive 
categories in the world. Chocolate is a grab and go. You're at the counters. You're just grabbing. You don't plan it. So you always have to be broadly speaking, making everyone aware, subtly nudging that reminder message to almost everybody. Given that then, you know, does that mean a lot of your campaigns tend to be about, you know, just brand awareness kind of up there at the top of the funnel? And then how do you use channels to nudge the consumer? How, how does that work? <laughs> In very basic theory, yes, we are a very big awareness brand messaging strategy to have fun. You know, we lean heavily on the voice of Will Arnett, which is the voice behind the Reese's commercials. So like it is that broadly aware, but then you have, whether it's a limited edition or a seasonal environment or some other area where you want to be a little bit more focused, where you would lean into some sort of targeting capability, whether it's a retail-based target, third-party purchase-based target. How do you use all those levers to take some of the spend and be focused? while the majority of your base spend is reaching that broad awareness of the entire population. Yeah, I think that's where, you know, I'm a little bit jealous of Hershey's and you have all this institutional brand ID and I'm, we're jealous of the starting point, especially, you know, I'm working on the, I'm working on Senate campaigns this cycle at the NRC. We only have really two incumbents, meaning like people that are already senators running for re-election again, Ted Cruz and uh, Rick Scotton in Florida. They kind of have a really strong starting point. They can focus on more just reminding folks that kind of like you, I feel like you guys do every site or every year. We're Hershey's, we're Reese's. Also, I'm jealous you get Will Arnett, but we're, we're Reese's, what we are, et cetera. But then on our side, we have a separate project of a lot of new candidates that no one's ever heard of that frankly haven't held elected office. And you have a year and you know three or four months to make their name ID as close to 100% with the voter base as you can. If uh, Trump were president, it was 2020, and everyone kind of knows who these guys are. It is kind of more similar, I think, to the annual uh, yeah, candy marketing. But this this year, it's uh, we have to start from scratch. It's like you guys introducing a new brand, I feel like, or a new skew of uh, of you know Hershey's, Reese's, etc. We just launched uh, Reese's Caramel Cups, and it is like launching a completely new thing. Even though it's part of the Reese's family, yes, you're going to have those loyalists try your new product, but can you attract new consumers into an already built brand because of a new introduction of caramel into a peanut butter cup. You have to find those new pockets of opportunity to not lose your base or not have them switch completely and keep that cycle growing with new consumers. One of the things that's happened uh, in the last couple of years, we talked about you know what happened in the last four years is the kind of rise of there's much more inventory out there for streaming platforms, connected television, and that connecting the dots up with you know other channels. I wonder if you could both sort of talk me through a little bit of how that the maturing, as it were, of CTV has changed the way you go to market and think about connecting up big awareness plays on CTV to, you know, lower down the funnel to more performance-driven tactics. You know, as I go back to what I said earlier, the proliferation of content everywhere has certainly opened up the purview of how to show up, how to be everywhere. You know, for me, when I think about the connected TV landscape, what I love about it is the ability to buy prime time at any time. When you sit down at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock or 12 o'clock or 3 p.m., it doesn't matter. You're accessing whatever content you want to watch in that moment. So in my opinion, when you buy this way, you've got primetime moments at all times. That person has decided they're going to sit down, they're going to you know watch whatever it is that they want to watch at that given moment, and that's your moment as a brand to show up. And that's how we look at it. And then when you take that holistic approach to those primetime moments, how do you then use the controllability of technology to control reach and frequency? So if I know that I'm talking to this person in 12 different platforms, well, I don't want my frequency to be a 40 on one of them. 
I want to control that and keep extending reach. If I get enough reach, my household penetration should go up. If that goes up, my sales are going up. We're winning share, we're reaching more consumers. Like that's our end goal. So being in as many homes as possible is actually impossible if you're buying on 40 different IOs or platforms. So I think when you think about consolidation and the value of bringing somebody from an awareness building tactic and streaming or on the big screen all the way through a funnel and having that control allows me to unlock more business outcomes than any media measurement can give me. I'm wondering if what the equivalent of business outcomes are in the political ad marketplace. Um, well, if we win. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I actually think this is where also, uh, you know, the candy and CPG world in general is, is pretty similar to political land is um, our outcomes also a little bit impulsive. I remember standing in line, you know, to vote for the D.C. City Council with a few of my coworkers before. And we were all talking like, who are these people? You know, it's like we don't know who anyone we're voting for. It's kind of funny. And then you kind of re- look at them real quick. You remember like stuff you've heard or mailers you've gotten and then you make a decision. You have one day to do that or one month to do that. And that's our moment. That's when you get your conversion. That's kind of how I'd compare the two there. I think from a high level perspective, we have the exact same problem in politics, especially with linear, where we have very high frequencies against some audiences sometimes. And when you're talking to one group of people 70 times, you're, you have less money then to talk to the rest of the folks who may not be very heavy media consumers. So having an ever-present point of view across not just linear, but also digital, I think that's something that our party especially is going to try to get a lot better at this cycle. It's interesting to me that 2012, 2016, I think, and Vinny, tell me if this is wrong, I think the corporate world almost looked to politics and was like, wow, they're doing some really cool stuff. We have to figure out what they're doing. I think that's kind of taken a step back a little bit now that we've gotten into the, you know, we have to target older Americans because older Americans are more likely to vote. And I think now as older Americans' habits have changed quite a bit from 2020 to 2024, it's forced both political parties to kind of adapt a little bit after, frankly, the corporate world has uh, to what the new landscape looks like. You know, speaking of different audiences, are there different channels for different audiences? Carl, when you said, you know, reaching older Americans, older voters, I'm wondering if that's still like a linear play now or if that's completely, am I just stereotyping a whole demographic? Yeah, well, I watch Wheel of Fortune every other night, so I'm, I'm maybe, I, maybe I'm breaking the demographic there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think linear is still the most effective mass reach uh, mechanism for folks 55 plus, especially broadcast. It's pretty easy to get over 75% reach across that audience uh, with a couple of weeks of linear buys. What I will say, though, is even older users are starting to shift pretty substantially, especially you know in the last couple of years. When I used to do my YouTube pitches, I always told the story of my father-in-law, who is a huge Elon Musk fan and watches a lot of documentaries about him on YouTube. And I would walk down one day and he's like, in hour two of this documentary that some college could put together about, about how he's making rockets or whatever. They do a penetration across all the different age groups. And I do think that we're going to continue to see a shift away, especially from cable, time spent on cable and towards the streaming services, whether it's YouTube or, or more of the down funnel services. As I stated earlier, you know, we reach everybody with a mouth. So every demographic needs to play a role in our media, both strategy, spend, investment strategy, that's everything. Kyle, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's what's happening between those environments is what's the shift. What we're seeing, and I think the industry is seeing more and more, if you remove live news and sports from linear consumption, you're going to see a drastic drop off in actual consumption habits. But you know, when you think about the purchase power right now, it's shifted a little bit into the millennial group who are the bigger purchases, which is 71 million US people. We talk about Gen Z a lot as like, oh, they're the up and comers, they're people we have to talk to, but they're, you know, the people we don't have to spend that much time on. There's 68 million of them. So they're almost equivalent to a millennial generation. So we're going to just wait for them to become purchasers. And I think that's a mess. 
So you've got to show up in the moments or platforms that those consumption habits are happening by demo and then show up authentically to that audience. So it's not forget about one versus the other. It's how do you paint the holistic picture across every platform and then deliver a communication strategy that resonates with those different audience groups. That's how we're working towards showing up across every platform. And that's what's, that's so interesting to me. It's like the purchasing power in our world is a little bit different, you know, like in terms of voting people that actually vote. Well, one, kids under the age of 18 cannot vote. So there's zero purchasing power. And I, I know that, I mean, at least when I was in marketing school, they taught us about how kids do have purchasing power uh, when it comes to telling their parents. They've influencing yes, purchasing yes. power. <laughs> but in our world, you know, the if you look at the millennial generation, you have a much higher voting percentage than it was 10 years ago, but it's still not anything close to 55 plus. Glad that we have the purchasing power in the millennial generation now, though. I think it's that 13 to 18 group that's so key for us. As I said, the influencing power. Everything, especially in our category, has become on demand. So I have the ability at 13 to use mom and dad's credit card tied to a DoorDash account, and I'm going to game for the next five hours, and I'm going to order a bunch of things from 7-Eleven. As we move into the future, five to 10 years from now, most of that generation will become now the voters, but they don't want to leave their house or they don't want to go out of their way to go do something because everything has come so easy to them by using a phone. How does the voter landscape change from either written ballots or in person to a truly secure ability to vote and get more buy-in to voting for a generation that is very used to just opening something up and hitting a button? We're throwing to the future here, yeah. I mean, Kyle, I don't know, what do you think? Uh, do you think we're going to get to that point? I think COVID kind of changed the voting rules in a lot of states that make it easier to vote. I don't know if we'll ever get to the instant gratification level until, you know, maybe 50, 100 years from now when we're voting on a blockchain and you get a vote coin and you spend it somewhere or something like that. So the convenience factor matters a lot. And then it changes by state and almost by locality, right? If you live in a rural area and it's hard for you to get to the polling place because it's a 10-mile drive versus it being half a mile down the street when you're dropping off your kids to school, that could make a difference as well. So it really just depends. I think that's really interesting <laughs> because... Each state is adopting their own voter rules. Sounds very similar to each state adopting their own data privacy rules. Instead of thinking of a national basis and actually simplifying the ease for everyday people to utilize something, it's fascinating that we all continue to live by state-by-state governed rules that are drastically different than just a national governing body to allow us to have a centralized ruling system to use, whether it's data privacy or voter rights. It's just, it's funny to watch that correlation between our two worlds. Even sugar taxes, you know, some <laughs> of the cities, I don't think it's gone after it's candy true. quite yet, but the, uh, you know, the Bloomberg rules around like the taxing soda and stuff. And I think Philadelphia did it. And then the sales increased outside of the Philadelphia, like urban area, <laughs> like substantially for all those stores because you're able to get cheaper stuff. But that's interesting. Carl, you mentioned harder to reach audiences. And I want to ask both of you, you know, about that and how the programmatic marketplace makes it possible to reach those harder to reach audiences. I know at the top we joked about suburban housewives, but you know, how granular can you get? What is it? 95% of people watch video, whether it's linear or digital. So that does get you to a pretty high threshold. 
the way I approach it, like we have to deliver messages very quickly, right? So that's why I think you see political really lean into linear a lot because you could get that mass reach in a day. If you're buying the football games, like if you're buying, you know, prime time on across all the all four networks and you have a presence there, you're going to get to 50% reach pretty quickly. I think the hard part is honestly the other 50% on CTV and making sure that you're distributing that message to the person the one day a week they happen to be watching ad-supported Hulu and they're not watching Netflix, for example. That's where it gets more difficult having the centralized approach, making sure that you're maxing out the non-linear household reach if you're already buying a lot of linear is is the hardest and most important thing that we have to do. We'll have maybe eight to 10 messages per candidate that we run. And we want all eight to 10 of those messages to be seen by as many people as possible. And we don't have as much time. I wish I had, you know, one or two month long campaigns that I could run behind these things to get that reach number, the incremental reach as high as we possibly can. But in reality, it's at seven to 10 days and we have to maximize that. For races, again, reach everybody, everybody with a mouth. Everybody wants to buy a races. Great. But then I go again down the portfolio. You've got variety brands in York Peppermint Patties, Almond Joy Mounds. So like, how do you take those with much less spending power and find those pockets of opportunity? You know, for your, give you an example, for York, one of the really cool unlocks we found was the snowbird effect. Sales actually increased because York leans very heavily, 55 plus, really 65 plus. And you see Northeast sales in the summer skew higher and then Southeast sales skew higher in the winter. And you're seeing the people as they move, the consumer habits follow with them. So how do you heavy up in those markets during the seasons? So when you don't have a large bucket of money to go spend as a brand, you use data and insights in that way to be like really targeted, hyper-focused on winning those key occasions for that consumer because again, at the end of the day, you can only stretch a budget so far if you want to grow a business. Fascinating that. So just to wrap it up, I guess I want to ask each of you one question, you know, the same question. <laughs> Kyle, what do you wish you could take from CPG land? And Vinny, what do you wish you could take from political? For me, it'd be like two things. Like I think the permanence of the institutions, you know, you have the same kind of folks that'll work and work in the same agencies that run things for years, if not decades, sometimes that makes it so that you have a lot of like earned experience and a lot of you've gone through all this several times, you know, what works, what, what doesn't. And I think you can have an informed approach every time politics is, you know, you have to start from the bottom and you build something up and then election day happens and that institution basically doesn't exist anymore. And you have to start all over again for the next two years. So that'd be the first thing. And I think with that comes the advantages of being able to have more predictability. We don't have a ton of predictability in politics. It's tough to know what my budget's going to be. It's really tough for me to know what the news cycles are going to look like next year. Without kind of that knowledge going in, without knowing how much money you have, it makes it harder to do long-term planning. That's where I'm a little bit jealous of CPG land. I kind of wish, you know, knowing what your budget is a year and a half out, I think it would be awesome in our world if we were able to say that with certainty. But, you know, it makes it scrappy and it makes it so that sometimes it's better than you expect and you get to have fun with it. And sometimes it's a little bit worse and you just have to be smarter than the other guy. I would say almost the opposite in a way, because I feel the marriage of branding and performance is so important to not separate the two, but to bring them together. And the agility that the political landscape moves with is actually a blessing in disguise. Pricing aside, the hyper-targetability, the ability to show value really quickly is something that we lack because we don't own the end game. So like there, there's a part of that that's like, okay, well, if you can be that hyper-focused and get a really quick outcome, how do you build that into a small percentage of your spending in the overall portfolio to be super agile, super hyper-targeted, really focused on market analysis, and then correlated to sales or in your case, outcomes from an election? That to me is super exciting. It's something that we 
sometimes strive to do. You know, we used to have this motto that we're still trying to build out, but like act like a CPG, think like a D to C. We don't own the end game, but how do you think really agile, but come with the power of being a CPG? So I think what you bring to the table from a political landscape gives us just a little bit there to think about of like being super fast, nimble and agile in a marketplace that changes so fast. And that's it for this edition of The Current Podcast. We'll be back next week. The Current Podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. Our theme is by Loving Caliber. The Current Podcast team includes Chris Brooklier and Kat Vesey. And remember... You're talking to one group of people 70 times. You have less money then to talk to the rest of the folks who may not be very heavy media consumers. Act like a CPG. Think like a D to C. And if you like what you hear, subscribe and leave a review. Also, tune into our other podcast, The Current Report, as we round up the week's biggest marketing headlines from across the open internet. I'm Damien, and we'll see you next time.